0: So Seven Mile Road was planted five years ago with a dream, a dream that a group of people committed to that we wanted to see uh, not just a gathering of Christians. It's not that we were going to declare victory if we could get a big crowd of Christians together. And, uh, and here we are. Th- this is exciting to be five years in and say, here's a group of people that God's calling together. But, but it's a good moment for all of us to pause and say, okay, what, what are we after and before we just look around and say, well, this must be a victory, you know, we, we've done what we set out to do, I want us to pause and ask some good questions of our hearts and invite ourselves all over again to the mission that God's called us to. That, that ultimately, what we've longed to see is a movement of God, something that could only be accomplished by the Spirit of God, that we will be celebrating for millennia. We, we talk week in and week out about how we long to see our great city of Houston so saturated in the presence of God that every man and woman and child would have opportunities to see and to hear about his goodness and to respond, to respond to who he is and what he's doing. This is what we have set out to do. And ultimately, what it requires is that that non-Christians, people that are right now outside of relationship with Jesus, they think that God is a distant reality, that if this mission is really taking shape in us and moving through us, we will see people that have previously been far from God and have thought God is uninterested in them and they are as uninterested in Him as they think He is in them. Seeing those sorts of people come alive, like come out of death and darkness into life and light and freedom and fullness and It looks like sleepy Christians, Christians who have have situated their relationship with God into a small little sliver of their lives, and they say, really, my life is about these things, but, but I will kind of situate a little bit of God into my dream of what the good life is. It looks like those sleepy Christians coming awake fully to who God is and saying, my whole life, like I've got a little instant of a life, and it could be lived for something eternal and when sleepy Christians are coming awake, and when non-Christians are coming alive, that is renewal. That is a movement of God that is not orchestrated by human strategy or energy or effort, and it goes beyond just a crowd of Christians. And so, here we are, five years in, celebrating what God has done, but Seven Mile Road, what I want you to hear this morning is this. We are at a fork in the road. We get to decide together, if running this play as a church that we that we run that we believe in if we can run that well and we can keep a crowd of christians together that we declare okay that's what we set out to do that's one that's one potential route we could take and i want to with all my energy through this text that's open before us plead with you that we would take a second route that we would take a route that says. We want to be men and women whose stories reverberate in eternity. We want to be men and women so alive to the things of God, so awake to the things of God, that we experience his power and his beauty coursing through our stories and transforming and reworking the stories around us. And beautifully, what calls non-Christians from death to life and what calls Christians from sleepiness to being fully awake is the same thing. And I think that same thing that calls us into all that God would have for us is beautifully illustrated in the passage that Robin read for us and that we're going to study together. It's the story of God going to a funeral. The story of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, showing up at the funeral of his friend Lazarus. And what we see is what happens when God encounters those who who are not yet alive. Or speaking in terms of the Christian who has grown asleep, it's those who've become asleep to the purposes of God. And what we see is that renewal, revival, a movement of God is going to follow the trajectory of the way that Jesus interacts in these moments and how it can affect your story and mine. So I want to invite you into the journey of coming alive and coming awake. Coming alive and coming awake to the things of God as we study Jesus, the resurrection and the life attending the funeral of Lazarus what we're going to see is four marks of what it looks like for you and I to come alive, to come awake to the things of God. Four things, okay, from John 11. Let's see if we can dig in and make sense of this together. The first thing is this. If we as a community, now listen, what I mean is we collectively, all of us, if you are here with a friend and you're not sure if you have a relationship with God, you are welcomed and I'm speaking to you right now. If you're a Christian who's been walking with God for a while, I'm speaking to you right now. I'm saying for all of us, wherever we're coming from today, here are the four marks of how we can come alive to the things of God. The first is this. We have to behold the beauty of Jesus. And I want to see if I can show that to you in this text. We have to behold the beauty of Jesus. We see Jesus really clearly in John 11. We see a few things about him. In the verses that we read, look back at verse at verse 36 with me, just after Jesus is brought to Lazarus's tomb, he's interacting with his sisters, and ultimately what he said, all the Jews see him crying, and they say, see how he loved him. See how he loved him. If we're going to read all of John 11, what we would see is that three times in this passage, Jesus is noted specifically as having loved this particular man. Lazarus, Mary, Martha, they were dear friends of Jesus's. They lived about two miles from Jerusalem, and when Jesus, on regular, regular occurrences, would go to Jerusalem for a feast or a celebration, as best we can tell, he would at night walk the two miles to Lazarus and Mary and Martha's home and stay with them. Their home was his home away from home. That's who these people are. And what we see is that Jesus adored them. He loved Lazarus, and he loved his sisters. These are dear friends of his. Maybe this is an overly simplistic point but if we are going to come alive to the things of God, we have to start here and not miss this. God loves people. However you have come to conceive of God, if he is distant and cold and powerful in your mind, what we need to hear is this. He loves to come to people and say, I would love for your home to be my home away from home. I'd love at night to come back with you and sit at the table and feast like Jesus would do often with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He had been had his feet washed by Mary, as best we can tell. He had sat with Mary and Martha and taught them for great stretches of time. And what we need to hear in this is this reality. The God of the universe is interested in people in that way. More pointedly, the God of the universe is interested in you in that way. He doesn't just want to be a lawgiver or a creator. He wants to be a dear friend that says, oh, how he, how he loves you. Jesus is revealing the character of the heart of God and the way that he interacts with Lazarus. And he shows it in two ways. The beauty of Jesus is shown in the fact that he loves him and there's two activities that he engages in that shows his love for these people. So we're seeing the beauty of Jesus. He loves them and the first thing that we see that he does because he loves them is this. He snorts. Yeah, weird, right? He snorts. Let me show it to you in the text and let me prove to you why it's beautiful. Why, you need a God who sees you and loves you and is willing to snort. Look with me. It says this in in verse 32. Look back at the text with me. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And if you scroll down to verse 38, what you will see is, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It's the same word used twice in this text. It's a favorite word. If you've been around me for a while, you've probably heard me talk about it before. It's the word Imbri
1: Imbremaiomai.
0: It's an onomatopoeia, a a callback to your eighth grade grammar class. Anybody know what an onomatopoeia is? A word that means what it sounds like, okay? Thud is an onomatopoeia. Embrymeomai is an onomatopoeia. What it means is a war horse snorting in anger. That's what it's supposed to sound like, and that's what it means. So here we get God showing up at a funeral, and what it says is at the beginning and the end of this interaction with them, it says that he's snorting with anger. He's muttering under his breath. Interestingly, just in the verses before what we read, in verse 28, it says that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. When he's standing outside a town with Mary, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And now he's confronting death, and he's snorting with anger. What you need to feel here is this is a showdown. This is a showdown between life and death, and Jesus is mad. I was reminiscing with my oldest son, Finn, recently. Uh, This was a couple years ago. We went on a, I was running and he was riding his bike and he was about a block ahead of me because I was struggling to keep up. And so he's riding his bike and all of a sudden I see from the other end of the block a mail truck, throw it in reverse and just start screaming back down our street. And I couldn't yell loud enough or fast enough to warn Finn who had his head down riding as fast as he could. And that mail truck ran into him and he went flying and his bike broke and I'm sprinting down the road and I can't tell you exactly what all I said it was not my most pastoral moment as that mailman got out of the truck I was telling him a few things about how I thought about his driving and what had just happened as I'm holding my son and making sure that he was okay what was interesting is a couple weeks ago Finn and I were talking about it and he said you know what dad I loved when you yelled at that guy and I was like, why? He's like, I loved it. You yelled at him. And, and what he was expressing to me is he felt really loved in that moment because his dad is not the sort, he's not a yeller. I don't know that he's ever heard his dad yell before. But in that moment, he saw something in me. He saw me yelling. And what I realized, I, I think what you need to hear in Jesus' snorting is that he's mad about the enemies of your soul. He's staring at death, at the weight of the curse, the recognition that part of being human is laboring in a broken world. We are going to die. We're going to die, many of us, after we have lost lots of people we loved. We're going to walk through a world where we are constantly tasting brokenness by the ways that people sin against us, the ways that we sin against others. And Jesus, in the midst of it all, says, I love you. I want your home to be my home away from home. And when I see the brokenness, I go, oh, that undoes me. He snorts with anger, and he says under his breath, Death, you don't know what I'm about to do to you. Jesus is mad. But then did you see it in verse 35? Sandwiched between the anger, you get anger in in 32 through 34, you get anger in 38, and in 35, what do you get? The shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. God goes to a funeral, and what he knows is that he's about to call Lazarus out of the grave. If ever someone could have shown up at a funeral with a smile on their face and said, Don't worry, everything's going to be okay. This was that funeral and this was that funeral guest. But he doesn't do that. He's angry and then he weeps and then he's angry again. And the reason is this no one has ever loved you like Jesus loves you. He has the power to do something about it. He's angry and willing to do something about it, but before he does, he enters into the depths of the pain with his people, and he says, I feel it in my own bones the way that you feel it. If we're going to behold the beauty of Jesus, what we have to recognize is this. No one has ever loved us the way that he does. That in the moments of sadness that other people don't fully see, the Proverbs tell us no one else can fully carry our sadness with us. They can't fully comprehend it. But into that place, Jesus says, I'm a friend that sticks closer than a brother. I get it. I weep with those who weep. I feel it down in my bones. And by the way, I snort in anger and I can do something about it the first thing, if we're going to be a people that experience renewal, coming alive and coming awake, what we have to realize is that no one in the whole of the universe will ever be able to love us the way that Jesus loves us. No one can love you the way that he loves you. No one can satisfy you with their love the way that Jesus can. This is the first thing. The second, we have to behold the beauty and the love of Jesus. Secondly, what we have to recognize is this, we have to let him in we have to let him in. Look back at verse 34 with me, and then we'll, we'll read 38 and following. It says in verse 34, he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Come and see is one of John's favorite phrases throughout the book of John, and it's, it's a phrase that gets repeated. If you've ever taken our John evangelism training, we, cor- we, we tr- trace it through the book of John. And the fact that people, when they see Jesus do amazing things, they run and tell other folks throughout John, hey, come and see what he did. Come and see what he did. The one time where people turn and look at Jesus and say, Jesus, you come and see, they're inviting him not to see beauty and miracles. They're inviting him to come and see death and decay. They're saying, you need to come and see us for who we are. He, they're saying they have to actually invite him into where they are. Verse 38 through 40, it goes on to say, Then Jesus deeply moved again. He came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and there was a stone laying against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. He has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Now, there's this interesting dynamic going on with Mary and Martha. And quite frankly, I think the same dynamic happens with all of us. If we're going to come to terms with what it means to come alive to Jesus, to come awake to Jesus, to experience renewal and revival, we have to wrestle with these two realities that keep us from inviting him in the first reality that will keep you from really inviting Jesus in. Now I'm talking to, to those of you that are not yet Christians and to those of you who say, I, I'm a Christian, I've already invited Jesus in, but, but let me just press a little bit and say, have we really invited him all the way into all of it to experience all of the life and vitality he has for us? The first reason that we resist that is because we think it's not that bad. It's not that bad. I think, as best we can tell, Mary and Martha tried to manage the sickness of Lazarus for a while because by the time the word comes to Jesus at the start of John 11, they say, our brother is really sick and we need you right now and and Lazarus is dead within 48 hours. What we don't get is the story leading up to the moment when they finally decided, you know what we really need? We actually finally need Jesus. Something went on prior to that decision and as best we can tell, it was them trying to manage it all. We've seen this from Martha throughout her story. Martha, Martha, you have so many worries. Martha's always trying to manage everything. She's even trying to manage Jesus when he finally shows up at the tomb. And it's oftentimes that the reason we don't experience all that Jesus has for us is because we're pretty convinced I can handle this. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. And what Jesus says to them is, you have to invite me in. You have to admit it and say, will you let me come and see what's really happening there? Friends, from the moment that we were conceived, from the moment we stepped into the, into the world, we have been consistently, regularly, willfully disobeying an eternally glorious God. It's what comes naturally to us. We could all tell a story Of the many ways that we have disregarded what he has said is best, and we have lived to taste the pain and the sadness that comes as a result. We all have that story. What we need to realize is that we are offenders of an eternal law demanding eternal judgment. It's who we are as human beings, postured as enemies against the living God. It really is that bad. And Jesus says, it's not until you admit that it's that bad that you're going to see the glory of God. But then interestingly, when he shows up at the tomb and he says, okay, now roll the stone away. Do you know what Martha says? Did you hear it? It's been four days. There's going to be an odor. The King James says, behold, he stinketh. What she's saying is, would you please spare our family the embarrassment? Jesus, don't do this. All of our friends are here everyone is here, and you're going to roll this stone away, and my brother is decaying on the other side of that stone. Don't do this to us. Do you hear the, the second temptation? The first temptation is it's not that bad. The second temptation, it's too bad. And don't we, don't we deal with Jesus that way? I'm either managing it, and I don't really need you, Jesus, or ooh, the shame And the ugliness and the depth of this thing, let's just keep that one sealed up with a big stone in place because I don't want to actually deal with the ramifications of it. Some of you have had parts of your heart sealed off for years because of sin that was worked against you or because things that you have done that were treacherous. And you think if people really knew, especially God, how would I ever deal with the stench? How would I ever deal with the rot? And what Jesus is saying, he, he looks at Martha and he says, did I not tell you you would see the glory of God? Listen, your ability to experience the glory of God, it requires of you that you say it really is that bad. I am a sinner in desperate need. And it really isn't too bad for Jesus. Until we're able to admit both of those things, the power and the beauty and the glory of God that is willing to funnel into all the broken places, all the moments where you need to know that he snorts with anger or that he breaks in tears and weeping, what he's saying is, I want to make your heart my home and I'm angry over the brokenness and I'm sad over the pain, but you have to let me in. You cannot manage this on your own. My Christian brothers and sisters that are living half awake, let Jesus into all of it. Let's come fully awake to what Jesus has for you. My non-Christian friends who are here with us today, Jesus has a better life for you. And what he's saying is it really is that bad, but it's not too bad for me. Would you let me in? You see, we have to behold his, his beauty. We have to let him in. And then third, we have to follow him out. Did you hear it? look back with me. He says this, verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Now, if we could read this in the original language, what we would would read is how clunky it is, how awkward it is. In one verse, there are four different words for loud. It says that he bellowed with a loud voice that was loud, 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 loud. Now, why the emphasis when it comes time for Jesus to announce Lazarus to come out? Because Jesus is making it so, or pardon me, John is making it so abundantly plain that the only thing to equate what's about to happen, the only thing that you can equate it to is the voice of Jesus. Everyone present heard him bellowing, Lazarus, come out! Some commentators and theologians have, have made the point that the reason he called him by name is because if he had just said come out, every dead person would have gotten up because the voice of life is speaking into death. And incidentally, what you need to recognize is this. and Don't miss this. When God speaks, it's a performative utterance. Performative utterance. You can use that later with your friends. That makes you sound smart, right? Performative utterance means this. When he says it, it happens. When in the beginning he says, let there be light, there is light. When he looks at a leper and he says, I will it be clean, he's clean. When he looks at a man whose hand is gnarled and he says, stretch out your hand, he does. When he looks into a grave and he says, dead man, get up, the dead listen. The voice of Jesus is unlike anyone else. And this is the beauty of what's happening in this moment. Now, let's just be honest if I had to stand up and do this week after week based off of my intelligence and my planning and my words, I would have quit a long time ago. I can't change anything. I can't convince you of anything. I can't reorder lives. I can't do that. But the beauty is this, that as I freely declare the goodness and the glory of God week after week, the free offering of the good news of the gospel that jesus is saying anyone could come i will come into your mess and i will lead you out if you will let me in as i declare that general offer the beauty is this the voice of jesus still speaks specifically to people's hearts he still says to people come out of the tomb he still says as a preacher preaches he's talking to you he still speaks to hearts and says listen you can experience something different and full. The reason that Jesus can speak with such authority is because he didn't just come to this one grave and watch this one stone roll away. He is standing in front of Lazarus' tomb a matter of days, a couple weeks maybe, before his own tomb would be sealed with a large stone. And that stone too is going to roll away because this one who muttered under his breath as he stared into the face of death was saying, death, I am about to shred you from the inside out. I am actually going to be condemned and killed and placed in a tomb, but death cannot hold me. The stone is going to roll away and I will have the power of life to offer to any who come with me. You see, what Jesus is saying is this, I am more beautiful than anything you've ever seen. You just have to let me into the mess. And as I come into the mess, what I will do is I will lead you out into real life. It is his voice that leads us out. And then lastly, if we are going to experience the renewal and the revival that Jesus has for us, as we are going to experience not just let's play church together, but let's experience a renewal, a revival, a movement of God we see Jesus as more believable and beautiful than anything the world has to offer. We invite him into the shame and the guilt that we're trying to smuggle, trying to handle on our own. We follow him out into the freedom and the fullness that he has for us. But look at the end of verse 44 with me. What an interesting note. It says this, the man who had died came out. So Jesus's voice has the power of life. It actually causes a dead man to get up. But the second half of the verse says this, his hands and his feet were bound with linen, cloth, with linen strips, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Does this strike anyone else as odd? Follow me. Jesus shows up at a funeral, and he can declare, get out of the grave, and the dead man gets up. Dead man gets up, and he comes walking out, but it says that he's all bound up. So just imagine like awkwardly walking, doesn't have free range of his arms, can't see anything because his face is bound. Jesus' voice has the power to cause dead people to come alive, but he actually says he needs the community to help unwrap the grave clothes. You see, the fourth mark, if we're gonna experience the renewal and the revival that God has for us, we see Jesus as beautiful, we let him in, we follow him out, and then lastly, we receive the help of the community. You cannot do this alone. You cannot just come and sit at a distance week after week and think, I'm a part of a church. That's not the way it works. That's not what the church is. The church is a family, the family of God on the mission of God, loving and tending to one another. What we are doing is we're showing up dead people that have come alive and we're still wearing old clothes that have some of the stench of death on them. And we gather together in community and we go, you know what? I need help taking this off. I can't do it alone. This is why Paul, throughout the epistles in the New Testament, he constantly talks about growing in Christ. He says, take off the old and put on the new. In essence, he's saying, take off the stuff that has the stench of decay and wrap yourself in truth and in goodness. And incidentally, this doesn't just happen miraculously by the voice of Jesus. He has wisely and faithfully and at times painfully required that it's going to, it's going to happen in community. And so today, the invitation is, is clear. Would you come on this journey over the next five years? Here we are celebrating the last five. What I'm inviting you into is that we would lean in and say we want a movement of God. We want to be used by him, which means we have to continue to see Jesus as more beautiful than anything else letting him into the brokenness of our hearts and lives, falling him out into the freedom he has for us, and then leaning in with one another and going, you need me as much as I need you. We can't do this without one another. But together, we can experience the miracle of living into the new identity that, that he has purchased for us, that he has invited us into. What we're about to get to do together is a vivid Soul stirring illustration of what we're talking about here. Those in the back, you may not be able to see, but right here we have our, our makeshift baptismal. And what we're about to do is we're going to get to hear a couple of testimonies from two people who have heard this, the specific call of Jesus saying, Come alive, come out of that place and come into the freedom and the fullness of the community. And then we're going to get to watch them. And as they enter the waters of baptism, the picture is that they are dying to their old selves, that they're being buried in death, and they're raised up to walk in newness of life. And we are going to celebrate that picture together. In preparation for that, I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray for us, pray for you. I'm going to ask that those will be involved in baptism. Go ahead and and make their way up. And I'm going to ask you to... uh, to deal with God as we take a few moments to consider this text and to prepare ourselves for this celebration of this illustration of what we're talking about. Would you join me in prayer?